Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. And I'm Chuck. And uh, you, okay, so Chuck, before we get to our guest, um, who is sitting here waiting patiently, I wanted to um, mention something funny that happened to me. And it kind of dovetails into what our guest has got going on. But uh, I started my new, uh, my new gig. And I'll be working within a school system. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I won't say any more than that. But uh, one of the new guys that I'm going to be working with, he, uh, he is a Marine. And his son is in the Army. Uh, and his son, he, I gave him a ball cap just because, you know, I work with this guy and his son comes home from Fort Bragg to visit his dad and sees the ball cap and was like, what's up with that? And he's like, oh, that's, you know, this guy I work with, that's, that's the podcast he has. And he's like, oh shit, I li- I've listened to that. So, uh, I wanted to give a shout out to private first class, AJ Triana of Fort Bragg. What's up, boot? <laughs> Um, or whatever they you, call you over there, cherries or whatever. Yeah, what do they call it? cherries? I mean, is it cherries? They're a cherry, I guess, or some shit like that. I don't know. That's what John would say. He told me because it's different lingo from the Marine Corps to the. Army. Yeah, it's always like everybody's different because <laughs> you're just a piece of shit them. when you're young. <laughs> In the Marine Corps, <laughs> they, you get abused and abused, and it's all about. I'm all about it. It's great. It's right. I don't know uh, about the new generation, but but speaking of schools, uh, our guest this week is who? Chuck, tell us who you got us this week. Besides the guy with the with the smoke alarm beep. By the way, if you guys hear that, unfortunately, as we started recording, uh, our guest's smoke alarm started to die. So we may just have to soldier on. So we have Ryan, he's the United States. <laughs> he's a United States Marine Corps veteran, um, and uh, he was overseas for a little bit, and now he is a elementary school teacher yeah right is that is that correct ryan you you went from yeah, Marine Corps to being an elementary school teacher yeah that is correct it's kind of a weird road <laughs> well welcome yeah. to the show why don't you, yeah. why don't you about tell us day. about that yeah right it's a we it's i mean i i probably had teachers that were uh that are marines um but i wouldn't know i don't know that they ever i don't do your students know uh, yeah, they know because my principal is kind of open with our background. So she kind of lets all of them know in the beginning of the year, which I was kind of against at the beginning, because I feel like once kids know one thing about you, they fixate on it. So, yeah. And I kind of just embraced it after that. Um, you know, I don't come out with war stories in the classroom or tell them about all the moto stuff. From yeah, not in court, elementary school. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> and it's pretty rare, I think, to have male uh, male elementary school teachers anyways, but especially like a veteran. So kind of a weird road of how I got here, but I really do enjoy it. And I'm going on four years of doing it now. Wow. Well, speaking of which, let's let's talk about that road a little bit. Why don't you walk us through how you uh, first became a Marine? And we'll talk about your experiences as a Marine real quick and then what led you to your current vocation. Yeah, so I kind of knew early on, I was one of those guys that got the bug. I was in uh, fifth grade when 9-11 happened. And my grandma, I'm from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, if anyone wonders how they know that name, that's where the Kyle Rittenhouse thing went down. Um, yeah, right. So I'm from Kenosha, Wisconsin. My grandma pulled me out of school when 9-11 happened, like they were going to target my elementary school. 
And so I was at home and watched it on TV. And I kind of got the bug after that when I saw, you know, the first, I think it was Navy SEALs and Green Berets going to Afghanistan, watched the invasion of Iraq on TV. And I kind of just knew, like when I got into high school, I graduated early when I was 17 and went to boot camp right. two days later. So that was, I kind of knew what road I was on. Now you were on the delayed entry program for that or, or I, was, I was it just the I, scheduling worked out? I took, I, I enlisted when I was, I turned 17, was in the delayed entry program for six months. Uh, the drone, uh, not the drill instructor, the recruiter was, uh, I think they needed to meet quota. It was during, uh, you know, 2009 going to 2010, the surge okay. was going on. Yeah, sure. Yeah. They were still and doing so that. I, yep. Yeah. So they told me, uh, I went in, I was, you know, a motivated kid and I was like, I want infantry. That's it. And so he's like, Hey, if you can actually graduate from high school early, if your parents sign the paperwork, which my dad was really quick to do. My mom was a lot more hesitant. So I uh, was like GTFO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my dad told me, he's like, you know, get on, you go. My mom, you know, it was a lot of, it was a hard time for, I think our relationship. Cause I kind of, I was not the nicest about it. I knew I wanted to do it. So yeah, I graduated early. She eventually signed the paperwork and it just worked out where I worked with the counselors and they were good about making sure I could graduate on time. And I, I graduated, I think the first semester ends right around uh, Christmas. So I had mm-hmm. Christmas with my family, graduated like January 1st. I, I set out for boot camp like two days later. Nice. So how does that work? You just basically, you know, as a senior, you you had very few electives or very few mandatory classes left and the rest were all electives. And so you were able to kind of cram all the, the requirements your senior year into one semester and gtfo or yeah so they took all of my electives off my schedule and they just gave me all the mandatory classes you needed to graduate and so i was nice. able to graduate you know early and that's what i wanted to do i was honestly a terrible high school student which is ironic because mm-hmm. now i'm a teacher but I was awful, <laughs> you know but as soon as i you know uh decided to join the marine corps when i was younger and enlisted when i was 17 i just you know, got a fire underneath my ass to get it done and put my GPA where I needed it to be. So that's good. All right. Good on you. I had a buddy who did that. Um, his name was Wesley. He, uh, he went to the Marine Corps early <clears throat> and he was like almost a full year ahead of me in the Marine Corps. And I was like, damn, but my parents didn't sign the waiver and I was probably too shitty of a student to do that and <clears throat> playing football and everything. I was like, nah, I'm going to stay. And then I had a dude I served with named Tabor Young and uh, he was a waiver. Uh, he was 17 when he came in. And we had to buy that dude cigarettes for the first couple months of the fleet. <laughs> it was really weird. I wonder if you can get arrested for that. <laughs> dude, you're young enough to die for your, you're old enough to die for your country. Why can't you drink? Why can't you? Well, smoke? I agree. Do what I you want. Agree. It used to be so on base where you could do whatever you want. But in 2007, like they're like, no, you can't drink on base. You can't do any of that shit. I mean, you would still mm-hmm. do it, but you weren't able to go into like a, like a enlisted club or anything like that, that or, you know, do your NCO club to the, drink. Yeah. yeah. You couldn't drink. You, you, they just wouldn't know. But there was so much booze flowing around that shit. Oh my God. You didn't need to. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, like like you said, and that's honestly, that's one of my things. If you are old enough to vote, but you're not old enough to buy a gun or drink, then how is that po- you can pick the people that are running the country and you can fight and die for it, but you can't buy a gun, uh, buy a handgun or consume alcohol. Come on, that's just dumb. That's and what's the big push right now? Like 18 year olds shouldn't be able to buy ARs. You can go, you can go serve your country and carry M4 and M16, but you can't right. you know, buy an AR at the same age. Yeah. Right. Right. So ridiculous. Well, mm-hmm. right now we have a country that uh, is basically being run by a man who's telling us 
that, uh, you know, good luck with our second amendment because we have to fight F-15s. I'm like, wait, aren't you really just saying that to the, your own people just saying they, same, same guy that pulled out at Afghanistan and, you know, left F- F-15s to the Taliban and also, yeah. I guess, forgot about the 20 year guerrilla war they ran. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't have to yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is an embarrassment. Um, Even whether you agree with politics or not, the, as far as military operations and, and uh, military actions and use of the military and support of the military, it's been a friggin' joke as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we could we could spend the whole hour just on that. Uh, so you you went in at 17 and a half. And uh, where'd you go to basic? I went to Camp Pendleton. So uh, Wisconsin is to the, the west of the Mississippi. So you go to Camp Pendleton. So I was a Hollywood oh. Marine. OK, yeah, so there you go. And now, yeah. now, how was it? Was that your first trip to California? Yeah, it was my first plane ride. I'd never flown on a plane before. I got su- I got really sick and I showed up and. We went, to the USO, we went to the USO and there's drill instructors there shouting. There was no delay. It was like, we got off the plane. I'm still puking in a bag. And there's uh, the entry level drill instructors there that are a little bit nicer, but they're still screaming at you and everything else. So I was pretty culture shocked. You know, and, <clears throat> and that was your first ask- time any ever in California, obviously. Did you, after that, did you think that California, just all of California looked like ass the way Camp Pendleton did? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I had, uh, I traveled a lot while I was there, especially with like, I, I went to MCRD San Diego, but I went to infantry school at Kendallton also. So I went to like La Jolla down to San Diego. Okay. So you get to see some nice stuff. Yeah. What were you saying, Chuck? When you, when you got off the plane, you met like those, those nicer drill instructors and then you Mm -hmm. went to receiving and all that stuff. You did your little phone call, but you're like, okay, I expected this. I saw it on all the brochures, all the little videos and cutting us our hair, like, basically scalping you and you're like that hurts but they really weren't like it wasn't the yelling that i had seen you know making yeah. a marine or any of the other shit like and full metal jagger <laughs> yeah but you do there was a show making marines and they never showed receiving they only showed like the like the the kill hats and the, your senior drill instructor yelling at you yeah. and it was rough and and I'm, I'm there and i'm thinking i'm like dude this is fucking cake this is like the boy scouts mm-hmm. this is easy my yep. dad yells at me harder than this and then all of a sudden you meet your fucking senior and the kill hats come in and shit hits the fan. When that nicer drill instructor hands you over to your, 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 your daddy and mm-hmm. daddy comes in and lays down the hammer real quick. And you're like, what the fuck is this? Did you have that same feeling? Like when you came in, you're like, what is this? This is, this is the Marine Corps. Like this is cake. This is easy. Oh yeah. These guys are, I thought it cupcakes. I, yeah. I thought it was like, I got lied to because the recruiters are like, oh, yeah, you're going to fucking hate your life, especially being 17. And I was like, okay, yeah. like, I'm still going to go, but that sucks. And they had all the letters on the side of the wall in the recruiting station, all the guys that wrote back, like, why did you lie to me? All that shit. Like, and so I got there and it was like, I always think about it as, uh, you know, you have a nice mom and then she uses the thing, like, wait till dad gets home. And so yeah. when we got our actual drill instructors, it was like dad got home. And it, what do they call it? Black Friday, where you yeah. get you get your drill instructors, you get there like Thursday and Friday is just a haze fest for like 10 hours straight. That's and awesome. I've heard, I heard now like they don't do a lot of the stuff they used to do, but they used to do uh, the Scuzz Brush 500 with us, which is Scuzz Brushes. Did you do that? Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. It's a brush and they put a foot locker in the middle of the room and they make you go around the foot locker and you have the Scuzz Brush and you're just scrubbing the floor and they're making you make NASCAR sounds. 
And so we just did that <laughs> for like two hours. And that's where I figured out that I probably made a poor decision with my life. But, you know, it's good. It was at that races. moment. Ryan knew he had fucked up. <laughs> yeah, we had races, dude, from one side to the other. And then when dudes would piss their bed or whatever. It, oh, wait, what? Wait, straight. what? 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 Back up. Oh yeah, yeah guys pee their bed, talk really their sleep, crazy shit, yeah. dude. Really, Walking, fucking sleepwalking stuff. I've heard of sleepwalking. I've heard of talking in their sleep. I didn't bed. hear that people pissed. Now, is there like it a special a... hazing that that you? Well, they you would get make you, you kill. Well, they, yeah, you get fucked up, but they make us kill a canteen of water every fucking night. You you do your inspection. They would spray you in the fucking mouth with aqua velvet. Um, and because they would always fuck up the, the Listerine and the aqua velvet and fucking spray Listerine in your eyes and aqua velvet in your mouth. And then they would make you kill a whole fucking canteen and they'd make you chug it by the numbers. And then you would have to hold it upside down. And if any water leaked out, they would haze you and then they would put you in bed. And then the drill instructors would be walking around in the middle of the night, fucking with you, like seeing who's out of their bed, who's talking and then fuck you up real quick, take you to the head, destroy you in the head and put you back. But they would make you kill a whole bottle of water in the middle of the night and you really couldn't get up. In the You're so of the night. exhausted. Yeah. And guys were pissing them, pissing themselves. Yeah, yeah. They would hunt you down. If you tried to go to the head in the middle of the night, like it was, you either pissed your pants or you went to the head and you got hazed in the head while you're pissing your pants. So like, so, you just pissed. yeah. <laughs> about getting hazed in the head. We were, we were close. We we're like third, third phase. And we had just been investigated by NCIS for hazing. And it was, it was fucking wild. And uh, that's a whole nother story. But this one dude we picked up from a, he got uh, recycled from a different platoon. Um, I never forget it. I woke up in the middle of the night because I heard screaming. I was like, what the fuck? I'm like, I got to piss. So I walk over and I tell the fire, it's like, hey, I got to go to the fucking bathroom, dude. Like really bad. He's like, no, don't. And I'm like, I'm going to piss myself. He's like, be in your fucking canteen. Do not go in there. And he's, I'm like, why? He's like, dude, just peek in. And so the, they're like these weird big doors, but they have like a small sliver of glass that you can like peer through. And I fucking look through it. And all I see is about a foot and a half of water on the ground, a fucking this, this, this recruit with a towel pushing it back and forth while like three drill instructors are in there. All the killouts from all the different um, platoons fucking with this guy, trying to get him to quit. And um, he was there all night. He actually ended up breaking his arm finished oh. and they went to bas afterwards and uh yeah it was wild i was like dude i'm not going to there fuck that dude it was a- yeah and in the morning it was all clean it was drained everything you're like what the fuck happened <laughs> dude was hell shocked bro like it was wild but so what did you end up uh after you you got out of uh basic and and you moved on to your military career what did you end up doing in the military in the marine corps uh i was a 0311 first and so i went to infantry school at camp pendleton uh, I think it's three months long, if I remember right. And you learn mm-hmm. just how to basically be a basic 0300, which is just infantry. And then right. you go to a selection, which it's Mortarman, machine gunner, anti-tank, and then uh, can't remember the other one. Yeah, machine gunner, rifleman, Mortarman, and anti-tank. And you go to kind of like a selection, like you're picking a college class. And so uh, I was in line with a buddy, you know, I'll say his name, Britton, if he ever hears this, shout out to him. And we were in line and we flipped a coin. We were in line to be mortarmen. And, you know, heads were going to go be riflemen, tails were going to stay mortarmen. Flipped, it, flipped the, the coin, turned out to be heads, so we went to be riflemen. And so you change off after a month and a half. Everyone does the same month and a half, 0300 kind of basic package. So everyone's got the same infantry kind of skills. And then I went to my specific job, which is being an 03, 
11 riflemen. So kind of like uh, the basic grunt that everyone imagines when they think about the Marine Corps grunt. Sure. And then after and then, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's what I was going to ask. What, what was your next step? So uh, there was a guy that showed up. It was a sergeant and he was recruiting people for advanced infantry training. And so it was for uh, light armored vehicles, which I had no idea what they were, but I just knew I did a 20 kilometer movement and my shins were killing me. I had really bad shin splints. I actually had a stress, stress fracture in my right shin when I was in infantry school. And so I just got the crap beat out of me the whole time. I didn't know what was going on. If you went to BAS, there was a chance that you would get stuck there for like a year sometimes to get re-rolled into a class, especially in 2010. So a guy showed up with a cool looking vehicle. It's like a basically a armored vehicle with a big cannon on top. And mm-hmm. his, his line verbatim was, if you really don't like hiking all of your deer, you know, go to advanced infantry school and become an LAV crewman. And so I just decided there, I was like, that's what I want to do because yep, these shins are killing me. Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, it didn't work out that way for me, but uh, I went to LAV school. I, I graduated and I went to first LAR. So I went to Camp Pendleton, first Marine division, um, which is actually a really uh, cool thing. Uh, Light armed reconnaissance is what it stands for. And it's mm-hmm. a regimental asset. So there's only four of them in the Marine Corps. First LAR, second LAR, which is on the East Coast. And then um, you have third LAR, which is in warrior country at 29 Palms in the middle of the desert. So those guys, shout out to them because they're just getting the shit end of the stick for where they are. And then you have fourth yeah. LAR, which is all the reserves. So pretty cool unit. A pig. I wasn't a pig. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys could, you guys, uh, we'd pull you guys out in, in Lejeune all the time out of uh, New River because uh, you guys couldn't cross the little streams. So they're supposed to be amphibious. <laughs> and if you've ever read the manual of making them amphibious, it's, they sink a lot. And so, uh, yeah, they, yeah. they have a tendency to get stuck. And that'll go into my story today that we talk on later on because, you know, Afghanistan was Iraq. They slayed so many people in those things. And we did in Afghanistan too, but they, they really are vulnerable to you getting stuck. And as we're seeing in Russia right now, armored vehicles against anti-tank and IEDs is really not where you want to be. Mm-mm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was an, I was an am tracker, so I know, I know okay. the pigs very, very intimately, very well. Um, and then, so after that, you went to uh, become a teacher after you got out and um, you went to elementary school of all things yeah. to be a teacher. Uh, so how is it like, you know, arguing with the kids over, you know, crayons and things like that. <laughs> well, I definitely, I, I eat all the crayons first and then I save the glue for after school. So that's what I do. So I, I do like a collection at the beginning of the year and I keep the all the red are, ones. Like yeah. a, the crayons are like your appetizer and then the glue is like the main course. Yeah. That's what I or have. Is that your after just, dinner cocktail? Yeah. That's like a stress reliever for me. I huff it first <laughs> and then I chug it. So nice. Yeah. And I actually, quick, I, I'm sorry. No, go for it, bro. I was going to say, I work in an Air Force town. There's an Air Force base near me. So I have a, and it's a special forces base. So I teach a lot of like drone pilots, fighter pilots, uh, kind of their fancy helicopter pilots kids. And mm-hmm. so when they find out that I used to be a Marine, because like I said, my principal tells everybody and I don't hide it anymore. I usually get gifts in the beginning of the year where everyone gets those like kind of girly cups. I get crayons and glue from the parents. So it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> <Fucking> hilarious <dude. laughs> so yeah. Um, 
So you mean from the dads, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Hundred percent. Mom's like, is that is that really necessary? Is that They're like school yeah. supplies, honey? Yeah, he <laughs> needs before, it. Before we get into your your story, um, can you speak on real quick regarding like the 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 training that you've you've said because you told me uh, before, kind of the, some of the the training in, in the wake of all the, like the the school and shootings and things like that and, and, and stuff like that. You, you said you've been pretty proactive with your school. Um, with kind of, you know, getting them more up to speed on what you should do instead of just shelter in place and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to do when I went into teaching inside an actual school, so I student taught somewhere and the way that my mind works, I was looking at a lot of the vulnerabilities, you know, one point of entry would have been great. We had a bunch of them. Uh, no one knew, knew how to use medical equipment. No one carried any. No one knew what to do in case of a lockdown if someone actually made entry to the room. So when I got to my school, which I've worked at for four years, um, I was a first year teacher. So it's kind of like being a boot. No one really cares what you think. Right. But I kind of, I spoke up during a meeting and I voiced my opinion that, you know, our plan of putting all the kids in one corner and not having anything besides that was very flawed. Um, You know, a good example of that is Sandy Hook. All the kids died in one room and they were all in the same bathroom and it's very unfortunate anytime that happens but i wanted to make sure my staff my my own son goes to the school that i teach at and so i wanted to make sure that my staff would know what to do in that situation so i really pushed for medical supplies i always carry a trauma kit in my backpack that i carry in the school right Um, and so past that um talking to my principal and you know kudos to her she was very vocal with the leadership of our district and so now we have uh, emergency buckets, they call them, and inside the bucket, the bucket's there for a reason, like you get stuck somewhere for eight hours, kids have to use the bathroom. Sure. But inside the, inside the bucket, we have water, food, um, chem lights, a bunch of other like survival type stuff. But the big thing for me was we have pressure dressings right now, Israeli bandages mostly, that mm-hmm. are, that's a, that's a good start. Uh, we're pushing right now for chest seals and tourniquets. And the nurse and I, um, we also have a procedure of if we have to use those things, I made sure all the staff set them up in the same place. So even if they don't know how to use them, if I say I'm at a casualty collection point and you know, law enforcement's doing their thing because they're not there to right away help victims, they're there to neutralize the threat, which I've let them know, the teachers know, um, you know I can help start tr- trying to treat or anything else. But then the other big thing was mindset. That's been the biggest thing that I've tried to harp mm-hmm. on. As if you're in a classroom and there's someone outside your door, they make entry to your room, you have to fight. Those kids are your responsibility. When we take them underneath our care from their parents, we are, we're filling, we're giving them our obligate or our promise that we're going to do everything in our power to keep those kids safe. Yeah. And so, you know, and barricade the door. Yeah. So, you know, barricade the door, improvised weapons. I've spoken about that. You know, that's kind of uncomfortable for people. And I have to remind myself all the time, even though I've been in bad situations in my life that have turned violent, you know, most of these people have not, they went, you know, they did what most teachers did. They went to high school, they went to college, they became a teacher and they became a teacher later in life. And to them, you know, I, I still remember one of the staff meetings where I said, Hey, you know, improvised weapons, we all have scissors in our room. And some of the eyes that I got when I said that, you know, what else are you going to do? We're not allowed to carry firearms. Um, 
you, you have to do what you have to do to defend those kids, break a window, get them outside the window, and you're at the door ready to do whatever you have to do. So just kind of those mindset talks of barricading, being willing to fight, not just accepting the fact that you're going to be a victim. Um, right. It's the, getting all. rid of that victim mindset. Yeah. You know, you rather, what's the, this, the motto saying, you know, I rather die on my feet than on my knees, but it really is one of those things where, like I said, my kid's in the same school. And that's one of the things I deal with is, you know, he's six years old. He's in first grade. If he's on the other side of the school and I know there's a shooting on that side of the school, it's going to be very hard for me not to grab a pair of scissors and run over there and do the best I can. Cause that's my boy. Yeah. So I try to remember that and put that mindset in everyone else. Like we're responsible for these kids. So one of the things I've seen in the schools in our area is um, above every AED hung on the wall is a stop mm. the bleed kit. That that's what I'm pushing for, man, is yeah. uh, get a stop the bleed kit. I've talked to the nurse. He's all, I have a male nurse. He's great. And that's kind of rare in elementary too. I'm the yeah, only male yeah. teacher at my school and he's, I think one of the only male nurses and we work in the same school and me and him talk all the time about if something like that would happen. You know, I, I'm not a paramedic or anything, but I've been through combat lifesaver multiple times. I, I try in my civilian life now, you know, I'm a cake eater. Now I just cake eating civilian. I try to keep up with, you know, paramedic type classes if I can, if I can make it to one and make sure I'm up to speed because that's the best I can do in that circumstance until laws change and I can carry a firearm. So, yeah. And you know, I know there's a lot of, um, for people that are listening to this, it's not as cut and dried as just giving the teachers guns, because first of all, you have to understand. Um, and I'm sure Ryan, you can attest to this. Having met a lot of teachers, these are people that, like you said, a lot of times they go from kindergarten through high school, right. In school, Mm -hmm. Then they go to college, also school. Then when they graduate, they get their teaching certificate and they go back to teaching in school. So they have been in academia their entire life. And a lot of teachers have never had to hack it in the real world. They, they have this, they have this kind of, it's, it's the same way that somebody who has been in the military, their entire career and their entire, they got it right out of high school, went to the military and then, you know, they get out 30 years later and they, they all of a sudden go back to civilian life or this, anytime you're that entrenched in one lifestyle and one bubble, that's going to give you a worldview different than other people who have maybe been out in the world, seeing and doing different things. That's, that's, that's one aspect. So not all teachers have the same mindset as Ryan here, who's, you know, been around the world with Marine Corps and, and now has come to teaching as someone with some worldly life experience. And then secondly, you know, one of the things you got to think about in active shooter training, one of the things we discussed is if a teacher just happened to be armed or there was an off-duty cop there or whatever, and the, t- the entry team goes in to take care of an active shooter and they see somebody armed, mm-hmm. they're going to smoke them. They don't have yep. time to, to figure out if that's a teacher or not. So how do you solve that problem? These are all things that... Um, have to be addressed. So I know I hear a lot of people all the time just saying, just arm the teachers. Well, it's the same reason you don't just arm the flight attendants. That comes down to like a lot of things to consider. That comes down with the community and the community policing and getting the police Mm -hmm. on board and the the deputies on board and the chief of police to come to the school and talk and to have the officers go to the school and them know what, you know, something that was going to happen, know the teachers, but also maybe you know, put some significant signifying mark on them that shows, yep. Hey, I'm a teacher. 
And if shit goes down and we're fucking armed, don't shoot me. Right. Um, yeah. type of thing. But it, that all comes down to community policing and yep. the community getting together and speaking and talking and developing Correct. a plan and devising a plan, which I think is more important now than ever, than ever. as we could see mm-hmm. in Uvalde and exactly. all the other school shootings. So I well, that's, and that's more. why I say it's such a difficult, there's so many facets to it, right? Yeah. And it comes down yeah. to communities and communicating with the police departments between the schools. And we have a great police department where I'm at, where I'm at, the response times are really fast. They always have a presence outside the schools. I kind of teach in a smaller town in New Mexico and they, they always have a presence outside all of the schools. And so, yeah, so they're very, they're very on top of it. And, uh, you know, I know if eventually the law changed, um, we would have a coordinating plan to make sure that didn't happen, or at least to try to mitigate it. It's the same thing as concealed carry. You know, yep. that's something you have to worry about as a concealed carrier. If you yep. have to engage someone, an active shooter, you know, what are you going to do afterwards? And, you know, hopefully you can't mitigate it completely, but there's steps you could take to increase your safety after a shooting to not get shot yourself. Right. right. I was in plain clothes uh, for my OIS and my partner and I almost got smoked by the responding SWAT team because we were two dirtbags with guns. And luckily the two guys that were on the trigger in the SWAT van or in, in the back of the SWAT truck over the top of the cab, they took that extra half a second worth of breath and saw that we weren't behaving like suspects and gave us time to pull out our badges because otherwise we'd be dead. Absolutely dead. Yeah. So there it's, it's a lot, it's an issue with a lot of moving parts. And unfortunately there are so many people that are intractable on this subject. They don't even want to sit down and go to the table and have the discussion about hard things that it's going to take to solve it so yeah absolutely and i think anyway. that's a problem with a lot of subjects lately in our country yeah. is no one wants to sit down and talk yeah what's the they used to say you should never talk about religion and politics and i think you did a disservice when you adopt that mentality because what you should do is say hey we should talk about religion and politics but we should learn to talk about it like adults so we have an entire generation of people that don't know how to discuss either one of those subjects intelligently and like a grown up. So, right. uh, you know, but again, we could go on forever about that. Yeah, <laughs> that well. absolutely. I'll tell you what, though, I've I've seen and I, I, I spoke to a guy who teaches for NASRO, which is the National Association of School Resource Officers. And what he said and what made me feel better is there is a nationwide push with a lot of departments to get away from the previous idea of a school resource officer which was some guy two or three years away from retirement who wanted a cake schedule you know for the last three years of his career or a problem child who was out on the street you know getting complaints or 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 having training issues and you're like well just make him the school resource officer and then we won't have to worry as much about it i'm gonna tell you what in today's day and age i I would rather see some of the best and brightest and most dialed in coppers become school resource officers. One of my, one of my best friends who's been on this show, he was a partner of mine, SWAT cop, absolutely dialed in, was in two OISs, took rounds for his department, all that stuff. And he became a school resource officer. And and we've teased about school resource officers on this show for a long time, Chuck, have we not? But ultimately, in all reality, SROs should be some of the most dialed in people because they are responsible for protecting one of our most precious resources, which is the kids. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, well, Ryan, I, I really am 
stoked to hear that you're doing all that kind of stuff. I think that stuff is really important, but uh, ultimately the floor is yours, man. What is your story? Uh, so I thought about this a little bit because I did two deployments. I did a deployment in 2010 uh, during the summer, kind of the fighting time in Afghanistan. If for any of the listeners that are over there, they know what I'm talking about. Um, I left there right before 2011 for my first deployment. And I went back in uh, later of 2011. So it was pretty fast turnaround. It was seven months over there, came back for, I think it was nine months and went back for seven. Um, but I kind of wanted to tell a story about 2000, uh, my deployment in 2011 that went into 2012. Um, I was I was with uh, first LAR, and we were going back during the winter. So that's kind of the slow time in Afghanistan, if there's such a thing. So my uh, platoon was tasked with uh, route interdiction, which is as fun as it sounds. You go and drive out in the desert. You live out of your vehicles for like three to four weeks at a time before you go refit. And our, our job was to try to disrupt the Taliban running in weapons, IEDs, drugs, you know, from Afghanistan to Pakistan and from Pakistan to Afghanistan. And so yeah, that's the longest, shittiest camping trip I've ever heard of. Oh, it, it was it was pretty it was pretty awful. You know, <laughs> um, I, if you've ever eaten MRE, uh, eating four weeks of them, you kind of learn how awful they are for your body. And so we were dealing with that. No showers. Uh, we did, we had one sat phone for the whole platoon. So you'd usually go four or five weeks from talking to your family. And there wasn't really anything exciting about it. You know, I think a lot of what I grew up with thinking about war and what I was motivated for was the images of Fallujah, Ramadi. Um, And then my, yeah, Sangin. And I was there when Sangin was happening. I was actually, um, it was towards the end of our deployment in 2010, where I was in the the talk, which I, if I remember right, tactical operations center, I was in there monitoring the computer for part of what my job was. And uh, because I could read and write quick, which is, I guess, a super, important skill and rare in the Marine Corps infantry. So, <laughs> so I was, uh, I was in the talk as a Lance Corporal and I was watching what was happening to three, five and Sangin, And it was just, you know, for any Marine out there or anyone who's in the army or law enforcement, when you see one of your brothers, whether you know them or not, or your sisters get killed, it's awful. And yeah. so just watching what was happening to three, five with the IEDs was just terrible. And um, that deployment started out really slow and we got kind of known for the battalion and for kind of our, we were down in Helmand province for everyone that was all the Marine Corps units that were down there. If someone needed like uh, a blocking mission or someone to intercept fighters going in and out or where they thought drugs or guns were going, our platoon was kind of the go-to. And so we got to see, I got to see a lot of Afghanistan, which was kind of cool, especially for the South, which is just desert. So it's not like you're seeing much different stuff, <laughs> but it was just, it was just really slow. And coming from my 2010 deployment, I was already a combat veteran, but I had a bunch of boots that just wanted to get some. So trying to keep those guys in line as a corporal and trying to keep their, their heads on a swivel and not get complacent was tough. And that's kind of the reason I'm telling the story because all of a sudden when the spring happened, it kind of ramped up. Um, we didn't, we didn't have any issues with IEDs personally at the beginning. And then there was a platoon. I can't remember what platoon or company it was anymore, but they had three IED strikes in one day. 
And so I had alluded to it earlier. LAVs are great if you want to kill people really fast. They have a 25 millimeter chain cannon that can shoot out to, I think, HE rounds. It's 3,000 meters. They self detonate. So each one's like a little hand grenade. Um, so you can shoot those pretty much point and it's, it's a, it's pretty close to one or two MOA. So like if you'd shoot it into a group with five rounds, you'd get close to one inch or two inches. So it's a very accurate weapon system. And it's very, very good at, uh, like I said, killing dismounted infantry or enemy vehicles. What it's not really good at is withstanding IEDs or RPGs, they up armored mm -hmm. them. So yeah. same way that the Russians are dealing with it right now, BMPs and BTRs are really good at killing dismounted infantry, but they're also very vulnerable. And so we were, we were sitting, I still remember we were sitting at a fob, we were refitting and we got news that this platoon had hit three IEDs with LAVs in one day. And fortunately no one was killed, but every time an LAV hit an IED while we were over there, um, usually the driver was killed because the engine's right next to the driver. Oh, and the Tal Taliban credit to them, uh, they were very good at understanding where to put pressure plates and where they needed to detonate IEDs to get the most casualties. And so they were detonating those IEDs right underneath where the engine block would be. And so those drivers were dying. I think we lost four or five drivers while I was on my first deployment. And so, and the unit before us, 4th LAR, had lost quite a few people, even their sergeant major. I think he was an LAPD uh, captain actually. And oh, so really? he was, yeah, he was killed. And so they, they figured out the LAVs really quick. And so one of the things that happened was we knew there was an IED threat and we had talked and my Lieutenant, Lieutenant Kavanaugh, I think he's a major now, he was really, really good about communicating with his NCOs. But one of the issues that the NCOs had, including myself, is we had also become kind of complacent. We hadn't really dealt with anything. We had some tense situations. Um, you know, we had a couple times where we'd roll up on vehicles that uh, were going to actually Iran for workers from Afghanistan to go work in Iran. And you would go and search and it'd be like 500 guys and there's 30 of us. And so you would have to figure out how to mitigate those situations where people are getting pissed off. And you have, you know, 500 people against 30 Marines mm. and any of them could have had a suicide vest. So we're searching 500 people at a time, putting them into a system that tracks their fingerprints and their, uh, their eyes. And so it was, it was, we had some tense situations, but we hadn't seen combat that deployment yet, you know, and we were rolling into the situation and we were discussing with the Lieutenant and we were going to go down and we were going to try to find IED makers and disrupt what they were doing. So we had a kind of a aggressive mission set where we were going to set up a fob on top of a hill that overlooked a valley that most Americans hadn't been in in a while. And that's where the three, the three previous LAVs hit, hit IEDs. So we rolled in with a National Guard unit from Arkansas and they were our route clearance. So they had basically tractors with mine rollers on them, like okay. big tractors with like cement. A combat engineer group. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we rolled in with them. It took us like 18 hours. And if you've ever been on an 18 hour car trip, imagine doing it in the most bumpy terrain and vehicle ever. And we finally get to this hill and we didn't know it at the time. No one had told us, which is kind of a, in retrospect, would have been a big deal. It was an old Russian fighting position. And so oh. 
the, the Taliban, the Taliban knew it was a strong point. The foxholes from the Russians were sac- actually still there. Like we found five, wow. four, five, five, four, five brass and these uh, foxholes. And Damn. so the Russians were there fighting what in the nineties. And so yeah. we rolled in and uh, I was, it was interesting because I had the uh, IED dog on our, on our, uh, in our vehicle. And so we, sent the dog out EOD was with us riding in our vehicle and they started searching and in about an hour we just realized it was a minefield and we had set back a little bit fortunately we had a plan we set back a little bit from it but they found a I think it was in all we detonated nine IEDs and we found out that most of them were daisy chained because the explosions were huge yeah they were huge and the you know to, to I'll talk. I always tell anyone who talks about badly about the National Guard. Those guys were fearless because they knew the IEDs were there, and they were just driving their vehicles with mine rollers all around them, and trying to detonate these IEDs for us because we were on a timeline to put up this fob to disrupt what the Taliban was doing. And they had this. Uh, I don't know what the rank structure of the the army is, but it looked like a, a gunnery sergeant kind of emblem, which I think they just mm-hmm. called him a staff sergeant. And he was like, "Well, this is my boy's jobs." They're going to go do it. And they actually hit two IEDs in their vehicles. And one of the guys got seriously hurt and medevaced. So long story short, we ended up clearing out this area. And it became apparent to us that we needed to switch out from LAVs to like MRAPs and MATVs that would mitigate our risk for death. Right. And so we switched that out. And it's just a steady grind for like three months. And I promise I'm getting into the story. I just wanted to get the no, background no, no, of what I'm, was going totally on. totally fine. Okay, so we uh, we switch out to MATVs and MRAPs. LEVs uh, were not going to cut it for what we were dealing with. It was mostly an IED threat, not very much of a small arms threat. There were guys that were doing that, but it wasn't. Our biggest threat was the IEDs, the mines. So we switched out to MATVs and MRAPs, and we just start patrolling the area either on foot or in vehicles. So remember when I earlier had said that it didn't work out for me that I wasn't going to have to go hike anymore. That was kind of, that's what I mean was the IED threat was so high that we just couldn't risk using vehicles at certain points. And so one of the, one of the things that happened because of that was we were doing presence patrols and then we were cycling where we were running almost one to two missions a day where we were cycling back to vehicles and going hitting these outskirt towns to try to make sure there wasn't you know, weaponry coming into our AO. And so one night we were out there and we had just got done with like an 18 hour kind of cycle mission, which we went through all of the towns. We would go to a town, set up a patrol base with the vehicles. A couple of guys would stay in each vehicle, one guy on the machine gun, one guy in the seat monitoring the radio. And in case we need a QRF, we were our own QRF. There was no um, real support within anywhere that would mean anything to us, even air. Because most right, no of the one air, else is coming. Yeah, no one else is coming. And we've we were in certain situations where we would call for flybys where we could tell if stuff was going bad. And they'd be like, okay, yeah, there's no one even within an hour of you. Medivacs were oh, over an hour away. So we kind of knew. And looking back, I feel like we didn't take it into a serious consideration that that was a thing. Because like I said, we hadn't lost anybody. We knew there was a threat. But when you go months, I think we were five or six months into the deployment without losing anyone. Um, you kind of get bit complacency. Yeah. Yeah. And so we didn't Which take is that a natural. Serious. You guys understand it's a natural human thing. It happens. You can only stay 
you know, you can only keep the edge of your knife sharp for so long. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I imagine police officers go through that. If you're, if you pull exactly. over a car every single day and eventually you get into a shooting or an OIS with that person, you probably didn't yeah. see that, you know, you weren't as dialed in as you, as you could have been. No. But, and I would say complacency within the law enforcement community is a little bit more than what it would be in, in the military. Because you're doing it every day, day in, oh, day yeah. out. You get to go home at the end of the day. You you lull yourself into a sense of security because, hey, I, I went home. I went home. It's fine. Yeah. No. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So sit, uh, so we we set up. We got done with that cycling mission. We I don't think we found anything. We found some drugs. You know, pretty pretty common down there. The opiate opium's grown in the south, and so we we confiscated some opium. Um, and then we were setting up a, basically like a camping site, you know, mm-hmm. I would like to call it a patrol base, but we circled the wagons, you know, two forties, which is a machine gun pointed outbound. Someone's on watch on every single vehicle all night. We cycle through watch. So we're getting down. And I remember talking to my buddy that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Cause I thought we were going to be dealing after, you know, you clear a base of nine daisy chained IEDs. I'm just expecting the ID threat. We're going to hit an ID. Something terrible is going to happen. Nothing did, which is very fortunate. But I was also kind of, you know, complacent in my own way where I'm like, oh, nothing's happening. Right. Which in my mindset at the time, I was 20 years old, about to be 21. I was 20 years old and I just wanted to get back into the fight. I'd done some stuff back in 2010. I was bored. You know, I'm over in Afghanistan, seven months away from my family. I, I want to be doing my job. And while I'm talking to him, it's about dusk and me and him see a flash at the same time. And then we hear just this really, really loud boom. And I've heard IEDs quite a bit. So I knew it was about a 500 pounder. And so a 500 pound bomb goes off. We can tell it's about a mile and a half, two miles down the way. So not that far. It reverberated the vehicle. I remember the Matt V, there's dust all over it. It shook off. It got all over us. And our staff sergeant, our lieutenant get out of their vehicle. And they look at us and we're like, hey, that IED blast was really close. We try to raise anyone on the radio. And like I said, we're kind of by ourselves. And the FOB's down that area. So we're thinking there's some Marines that just got hit, maybe a dismounted patrol. And so we re-throw everything into the vehicles. I get up into the turret on the 240 and the SPAT fee. I'm the point vehicle. So I'm the first vehicle in the convoy. That's what my job was every time I was, when I was in in the LAVs, I was the point gunner. So I was the first gunner in the vehicle. And so that's where I wanted to be. That's where my vehicle commander wanted to be. That's where my driver wanted to be. And so we roll off this hill. And if anyone's been to Afghanistan before, you know that if there's one IED, there's more. And so I got my MVGs down. I'm scanning. I'm looking. I'm locked on. And we roll up and it gets dark. It takes us a while to get down this road because we're trying to mitigate the IED threat. Because even though we had a mine roller, the Taliban was really good at offsetting IEDs, which means they'd put the pressure plate in front. So you'd run over the pressure plate with the, with the mine roller or with the mine roller and the IED would blow up underneath you. And so we were trying to mitigate that threat. And I'm looking with my uh, night vision goggles. We can tell we're getting close to whatever had blown up because there's still some fire on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up my MVGs. We have white light and there's an ear on the mine roller tire just near. And I'm like, you know, I yell, stop, we stop. And we turn on our high beams because there was no loom that night. So MBGs work off of the moon for the most part. Like you can get some illumination without 
without the moon, but so we use our high beams, which in retrospect was probably not a good idea running into a possible ambush. So we use our high beams and there's just body parts everywhere. And quickly I realized that it was uh, MVP, which is the Afghan border police. And they ride around in like Ford Rangers, basically no armor. They run with like six guys in the back, two guys in the front. And that's what they do. And there's just about eight to nine guys worth of body parts everywhere. And there's an AMBP truck that's about 20 meters away. And they're not moving. They're terrified in the back. And so I, I get the interpreter. He steps out on like that. Matt V's have like a side thing that guys have in their trucks where you can step on it without stepping on the ground. And he's shouting at them not to move, stay where they're at. And as soon as they see us, I guess they just put it together that everything was okay. And they just get out of the truck and they start collecting these body parts. And they're walking all around the ground, all around us, picking up all these body parts. And the thing that always stuck with me and the reason that I tell this story is I don't think I had the correct mindset rolling into it. I knew there was an ID blast. I'd seen blown up bodies before. I'd seen all of this before, but I'd become so uh, distant from that mindset I used to have that there's this guy and it was an AVP guy, gray hair, older dude. And he picks up this torso, but he picks it up by the hand. So like the torso was split in half and he picks this, uh, this torso up by the hand and rigor mortis had already set in a little bit. And so he's walking away from me and the torso is upside down and he's like holding the hand of the torso. And so this torso is just kind of floating in space a little bit. Right. Right. It's a little, uh, surreal. A little surreal. And I'm trying to like tell my new guys in the back in the back who've never seen that before because they're getting ready to go out with minesweepers and getting to go out with the dog. And if you ever worked with dogs before, they usually get kind of spooked by bodies or they can. Some dogs do. We had a Labrador retriever and I was like, hey, man, I think you should kind of take a second before you let the dog out. And he let the dog out and the dog went right up to a body part and just skirted right between my legs and just sat there. His name was Raven. And he was just, yeah, so he's just shaking. So the IED dog's out of the, out of the game. But what we figured out from that night was they were uh, smuggling up IEDs through the, across the Hellman River down by this certain town. And we knew what town it was. It was the last time we had gone there, they actually spoke in Russian to us, to an interpreter. And so mm. Americans were not like 100% on their radar. Like an older gentleman came out and he started to speak Russian. And the interpreter had to tell me he didn't know how to speak Russian. So we knew that that's where the IEDs and, the, and everything was coming from. And so that night we slept in the minefield. We couldn't move. We had to wait for EOD, but EOD was about six hours away. So we took a uh, shaving cream and marked all the, the metal signatures we hit. And it turned out we were sleeping around like, I think it ended up being like five IEDs around where we were yeah. sleeping. Damn. And so, so we slept there that night. And this just kind of turned into going from being a completely complacent deployment into being a very like, the end of it was very kind of fast. And do I have time to tell a little bit more? Or? Yeah. 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 Okay. So after that, we had come up with a, and you know, I was a corporal, so I was an E4. So I didn't really get to go into the mission planning very much, but we kind of knew we wanted a retribution, even though those, those weren't our guys, you know, seeing guys that you had worked with, because we had worked with that border police kind of, I don't know what they call themselves, outfit, platoon. Um, we knew a lot, we knew some of those guys that had been blown up. And so we kind of wanted to bring the fight to the enemy because at that point we were just dealing with mines. Right. They were your, they were your friends. They were your, your, your homies to a certain extent, and they were on your side and that was intended for them and you. Yeah, exactly. 
And just kind of seeing them go through that, like I kind of imagine my, my guys. So we decided that we were going to patrol to this town, which we did a couple of times after this story, but it was about, if I remember right, it was about 15 kilometers. And so that's 15,000 15, meters. I don't know what that is in miles, but it's pretty far. And we decided not to take vehicles just because the IED threat. So we were going to take a very, very weird uh, path to get there to avoid IEDs. And we had to carry our food, our water, our ammunition. And we were going to set up on this river and try to find, we're going to interject vehicles and try to find uh, weapon systems. And so we went down there and we patrolled down there. It was a long patrol. We set up a patrol base. We went down to the river and some of us stayed back and we uh, interdicted vehicles. So I was with my buddy, Jeff, and it was just the two of us. And we were interdicting vehicles on this road. And the other platoon or the other uh, squad called up to us and they said, you know, we have a we have a metal signature. We're digging it up. It's really, really big. We kind of need you guys down here. And the villagers are starting to clear out of the area across the river from us. So it was right on this beach on the Hellman River. And usually for us, anytime villagers start to clear out, especially kids, you know something bad's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not a good thing. Yeah. So they like rats on a sinking ship. Yeah, exactly. And Taliban, they really don't care about killing kids when they have to. They use them to, uh, I'm sure they still do, but they used to use kids to, uh, you know, you send a kid into the middle of the platoon with a wheelbarrow and they would would command debt the kid and kill the kid and kill the Marines. And so that happened in Sangin. And so they didn't really care about the kids, but if they could to like win the hearts and minds, they would tell the villagers to go inside their, uh, inside their houses. And so we got that radio traffic and we started sprinting down to this beach. It was about a mile and a half movement, and we all sat up there. And I remember just being soaked in sweat. It was it was spring, so it's like 107 degrees. You have full gear on. Our combat loadout at the time was seven magazines, so we had seven magazines of 556. All our other gear were set up on this riverbank, and it was kind of like the most surreal firefight that I like I can think of, because we found a mortar tube. It was an 81 millimeter, and one of the guys who dug it out, it's like holding it above his head, like, oh, look at what we found. Like, yes, they were going to use it against our fob. And uh, our squad leader is looking down into this hole and you just hear this loud crack, not like an AK. We were pretty sure it was an SVD or a Mosin Nagant. Sure. And it cracks next to him. And my squad leader had been in, I think he'd been in Ramadi or Fallujah. I can't remember anymore. But, you know, seasoned guy, seen combat, the last Afghan deployment. And he just throws like a fit. Like what, when he got shot at, he didn't take cover. He didn't do anything. He threw like a fit. Like if you've ever seen like a toddler, like get pissed off and like start <laughs> yelling. Their like feet and yelling. Yeah, exactly. That's what he did. And he's just started letting out rounds across the river towards the direction of the shot. And it was just, no one could maneuver. You couldn't do anything because they're across the river. You're on the other side of the river. So it just became a shooting match of who could see who and who could hit who. And everyone's just shouting. Everything's going crazy. Rounds are kicking up in the dirt. And I just still remember, like, I shot, like, a few rounds. And I look over at my squad leader, and he's still, like, standing straight up. Like, still just <laughs> pissed off. And they start marking targets with 203s, which is a grenade launcher, using smoke. And launching... Uh, and this is part of the story that I, I didn't think about bringing up, because I don't want to bring any, like... I don't want to say hate, but any critique to the Marine Corps. But we were issued the HK... IAR, which is basically a HK416 extended right mm-hmm. before we went. So it replaced our saws. 
And so we didn't have a squad automatic weapon with like a 200 round drum or anything. We had these IRs that used 30 round magazines, which would have been fine. That's our only full auto gun. And in those kind of fights where they're shooting with full auto AKs and everything else, and you're trying to get fire superiority, but the magazines they issued us didn't drop free. And so, so they were hitting the magazine release and they would have to strip the magazines out every single time they went to reload. So it became from a one-step process to two. And we're trying to get fire superiority and we just couldn't do it. So we had to rely on just the fact that we had ACOGs, which I still love ACOGs to this day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And good, you know, good, good communication and getting our hits. And that fight was just kind of surreal because, you know, going from a whole deployment of not really seeing anything, there wasn't really anything going on to being in this fight on this beach where you can't maneuver. I'd never seen anything like that or really heard. Like I heard about, I'd never fought in urban combat or where guys get locked down in a house. That's kind of what it felt like. Right. And so that, that fight ends. Um, you can't even do a battle damage, damage assessment. We get air on station. Um, there was actually a AC-130 that was supporting a special forces unit down south of us. And they came on station and kind of the bad guys ran off. But that, that, that fight turned into just a nightmare on the way back. So we had to carry the mortar tube back, the base plate. And we got hit in a sandstorm. So we actually ran out of food and water and we were stuck in this one spot for like two days. It was like the, the easy deployment became hard where we ran out of food and water. We were actually buying food from the local Afghans that were near us. Right. You had six months of cakewalk and then it all goes to shit at the end. Yeah. And, and so that's why I thought of telling the story today because it kind of showed our complacency where it was, we didn't really expect, even though we should have to get into something and we got into something bad and it just kept cascading where we ran out of water, we ran out of food and we had to make the call to walk back in a sandstorm, which they call red air, you know, pilots can't fly in it. So if you hit an IED, you get ambushed again, you, someone gets hurt. Um, that's you're just, it. you, you're kind of fucked. You have to rely on your Corbin and you have to try to carry him out. Yeah. And it was just, it was one of those, it was, I was thinking back about the 14 months I spent over there. And this was the story that always pointed out to me because I felt like it was a failure on my part. A lot of the, not a lot, like I didn't hold full responsibility. I wasn't, you know, the end all be all when it came to things, but I could have made decisions that were better for my Marines. And I didn't because I got complacent. And we were, we had to walk up this hill to get to the fob. And I just remember looking back and it was like one of those moments where you feel like shame where you didn't like do something enough where right. all of us are like seizing up because we hadn't drank water in like I'd probably a day and a half. We all had like a sip of water and we're just seizing on the way up this hill. And I'm like a JV squad of like soccer players could kill us right now. Like we're so, <laughs> we're just so fucked up, but yeah, that was the reason I wanted to share that story. I had another one, but I, I really wanted to focus on this one because hopefully it helps someone that's in a leadership position. Like if you allow yourself to get or complacent, you're the people underneath you will too. Right. And yeah. It, it, it goes, I just had this discussion with somebody uh, yesterday where I, they, they were in a leadership position at a company and they were asking me about something they wanted their employees to be doing. And I, he said, you know, do you have like some sort of secret or some sort of advice on how I, I can get them to do this? I said, well, how much of it are you doing? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, are you making it a priority? I said, I named three other programs that he had implemented in his business. I said, you did this, you did this, and you did this. 
I said, you made those a priority and you told mm -hmm. your employees, these are a priority to me. Therefore, they're a priority to you. I said, you got to start making the things that you want them to do a priority for you. Don't make it an afterthought. Don't make it a, hey, I'd like you to do this and then, you know, not really care. And it's just, it, that, that was his complacency. You know, if you're in a leadership role, whether it's at a business or in the military or on a police department, you know, be Patton, you know, lead from mm -hmm. the front, you know, be the guy that you're not complacent and therefore you expect your, your boys and your girls that follow you to not be complacent as well. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, I, I'll add on to that real quick. I took a commander, brand new commander to our department, had just gotten hired on, came over as a commander. None of us knew him from Adam. His first impression to me was he got introduced to us all at his whatever hiring. And then I was working a graveyard shift and he wanted to come for a ride along with some different shifts. He came for a ride along with me and we pulled over a car and he was acting as the cover and I was acting as the contact. And when I pulled this dude out, I'm like, all right, let me pull the other dude out. And I'm like, Hey, can you get his horsepower? And he's like, uh, I don't have a pen or a notepad. And he's in full uniform. He's wearing mm -hmm. the belt. He wants to go for a ride along. He wants to be my cover officer. And yet here he is complacent because he's a commander. What am I going to need a pen for? You know, yeah. and that was that was my first impression of him. And that that stuck with me forever that this guy was he wanted to be out there looking like he was doing the work, but not doing the work. Yeah. And there's a, a thing that I think about a lot. So I'm 31 now. So this was okay, that deployment was 11 years ago. And there's a yeah. thing that we said as NCOs that like, I still feel shame to this day. So anyone who thinks that like that the shit you do when you, you're younger doesn't matter is we said, oh, we think the Taliban is gone. Obviously the Taliban was not fucking gone. Yeah. But what we did oh, was yeah. we, yeah. what we installed in the younger guys, because we were pissed off because we weren't in the fight and that we were bored and we were honestly being ignorant was we installed in the younger guys. Oh yeah, I don't have to worry about this. And so that's something I think about all the time as like a leadership thing. If I could go back in time or I could, if I ever had to do it again and I was in a leadership position where I had to take people into combat or I had to install mindset is I take it overly serious now. And I'm sure there's some people on my staff that work with me as a teacher where they're like, this guy is over the top with some of this stuff that he has us like talking about and training about, but there's a reason right. behind it. Because I, I still feel shame to this day. Thankfully, none of my guys died. We won that fight. Um, thankfully, no one died later in that deployment. I think after that, we locked it on. So that's like one redeeming thing I take from it. But there's a great right. sense of shame that I have. And I can't imagine the survivor's guilt I would have if one of my guys would have died because I didn't take oh. it serious enough. Oh, for yeah. Sure. For sure. So, you know, well, at my, go ahead. at my agency, we have the Ten Commandments of Policing where it's like, you know, things to follow and live by so you don't die. Um, it's like tombstone courage, complacency, and there's a bunch of other stuff. And it's like on the roll call room door. And yet still guys get complacent. You get newer officers who come, you know, they're like, oh, this is a slower, slower area. I'm like, bro, you have, and I had that same thought when I went there from a faster area and I was like, oh, this is cake. And then shit started popping off and I'm like, what is going on? And I'm like, dude, I had to tell these young kids, I'm like, you know, you got to be careful because just because you think you're in a slower area doesn't mean it's slow. doesn't mean there's no danger. And they, to the point where 
like people were so lax, like out on patrol and things like that, especially with their partner officers, weren't really talking about contact cover. They weren't talking about what would happen if, if one, if, if I went down or you went down, who's going to treat, what are you going to do? Cause a lot of them only have the base, you know, uh, first aid level. And I, my buddy impaled himself on a fucking wrought iron fence. And if it wasn't for me and my quick thinking, he probably would have lost a lot of fucking blood and would have been, you know, nerve damage in his leg. But because I was able to, you know, control the situation and had more training and experience than most of those other guys, even though we had a former SWAT operator, but he couldn't see what I could see. And I was able to talk to him. We were able to work the problem and ultimately get him to safety. But no one had really seen shit like that. No one really carried stuff. And then, then the department started supplying more IFACs and they just you know, more patrol equipment for first aid, um, for easier to get to trauma stuff that you could actually wear on you, your person and then tourniquets. We started getting tourniquets and then people started hanging them out, but no one had really thought about that until we had situations that had happened like this and officers actually knew what the fuck they were doing and were able to treat it. But if that would happen to someone else, like they were complacent, they were like, oh, this will never happen. They didn't even think about it. It wasn't in their wheelhouse and dudes would get hurt or injured. And then I can't tell you how many officers I've seen so complacent when they roll up to a hot call or they roll up to, oh, this is just a regular domestic and they park right in front of the house. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Back off, flip around the block, bypass that shit, yep. park down the street, walk up because there were so many times where dudes would park in front and they would get ambushed or shit would, you know, the suspect would run up to their car and they wouldn't have a chance to get out. And next thing you know, they're trying to throw that bitch in reverse and they're trying to, you know, create distance so that they can, you know, uh, minimize the threat so they can dismount their vehicle and handle the the issue. So there was like all these things that I, I see happen and I'm like, dude, what the fuck? And it's up to us as senior officers to be able to take these new guys under our wings. And I would do it right off the bat, right when they would get there, I would try to shock the shit out of them and explain all the things that can go wrong and that will go wrong. And that to not take this shit for granted and, you know, and, and long and short of it, but it was just wild. How many cops, new cops are so complacent and it's so dangerous and hopefully there's some out there that are listening that are new or maybe some older guys that are like you know what that's right we really haven't had a talk like this maybe i should talk to my guys and just make sure their head's in the right place because yep. it's not like a deployment you get to go home every night you have other yep. things you worry about your wife your girlfriend your boyfriend your husband yep. your fucking kids and when you go to work you have to turn that shit off and be there because if you're not that complacency will get you and it could kill you yeah it's a 12-hour deployment every time you go to work so I, I will add to that with that, with that, with that kind of behavior, whether it's Marine Corps, Army, police, fire, I will say this. We, we had this discussion in a class I was in uh, just this week, and it was talking about, uh, you know, you can somebody doing something that wasn't it wasn't safe. Right. Was was not really the best way of doing it, the safest way of doing it. And the instructor says, how many times can you get away with it? A thousand, 2000. And I said to him, I said, you can get away with it until you can't. I said, you can do it a thousand times, but that thousand and one, you can do it 2000 at times, but that, that 2001, you know, it's that one time and you never know when that one time is going to be. And that's why complacency is such a bitch. Yeah. It, it's going to it's going to bite you in the ass when you least expect it. Why? Because you're being complacent and thereby you least expect it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, how bad shit had gotten with complacency. There was dudes who didn't even know what an arterial bleed looked like. Guys and gals alike, whether they're brand new or they have some time on the job, they didn't know what an arterial bleed was. And it was up to the guys who knew what the fuck we were doing. And most of us were all prior military. We're like, you don't know what an arterial bleed is. So we're having to give hip pocket classes in roll call. 
And like, hey, this is how you apply a tourniquet. This is the proper way that you don't put it right over the wound. This is what an arterial bleed looks like. Yeah. This is that's when also you use a failure dressing. of leadership. Is, and it was fucking wild. I'm like, how are we first responders? And one of the best agencies, how are we first responders? Yet we don't know what an arterial bleed looks like. We don't know when to apply a tourniquet, how to apply a tourniquet, when to apply a, apply a pressure dressing, or when to apply a chest seal. Like this shit isn't really talked about. I'm like, this should be a priority. Even when they do updates, it's just, oh, this is the first aid CPR on children and adults. And they really don't get yeah. into the nitty gritty shit. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is I wild, went to a dude. stop the bleed class. I went to a stop the bleed class recently, right? It was at a hospital. You know how long it took? It was an hour and a half class scheduled for an hour and a half. Took 45 minutes. Took 45 minutes. Mm. Took 45 minutes to go in and learn how to pack a wound to learn how to use uh, uh, pressure dressing, learn how to make pressure dressing when one's not available, learn how to apply a tourniquet and learn how to do a, a life-threatening bleed assessment. That was it. Four things. Yeah, so I had to make a- 45 minutes. I had to make a pressure dressing on the fly when my buddy impaled his fucking leg. Yeah. <laughs> lady came, I was like, I, I had to call a lady to some lady's fucking house. And I look at her and her face is white. I mean, she was a white lady, but she went like Casper. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, I was yeah. like, bring me all the towels that you have. I soaked every one of her fucking towels till I could get the bleeding to stop. And my buddy had passed out on the ground from pain. And I was like, dude, this is wild. And I had to make a, a makeshift pressure dressing and do it all while communicating over the radio because dudes are just freezing up and seizing. And I'm like, yeah. this is fucking wild, dude. Like the amount of complacency that I have seen, I'm just it's it drops my fucking jaw to be quite honest and if that's a new trend that's going around whether it be in the military or police community like that's that's dangerous as shit yeah well i don't, unfortunately i don't think it's a new trend i think it's just cyclical we go through our cycles of vigilance and then we go through our down like we just let shit get away from us and whether it's on a personal level or on a departmental or a a, a, a service you know branch of service level like it, it just happens it's and it's part of that I'll say it. Part of it is a failure of leadership because if you're 100%. not if you're not keeping your people trained, if you're not keeping your people sharp, if you're not demanding the best from them, and if you allow yourself to be complacent, they'll allow those themselves to be complacent. Oh yeah, they don't make a lot of agencies don't make training a priority anymore. No. They're just like I, we just need to make man the bodies and handle handle the calls and get it out there. You're like, okay, what about yeah. training? Pay a no, couple no, no, of thousand now for training or pay a couple million in lawsuits <laughs> or death benefits later. So, well, yeah, Ryan, we appreciate yeah. you coming on the show. And I think it's really cool. I, I, I would be interested to find out uh, just how many Marines went on to be elementary school teachers. I would guess the number is, is smaller than say Marines that went on to be cops, <laughs> but probably. Um, yeah. But I think that's really cool, man. And I, I also think that um, the fact that you're there trying to help change the hearts and minds of teachers and administration in the school system and school board members and, you know, having these tough conversations with people that really have, you know, in a lot of ways lived in an academic bubble is, is, is super important. Well, I appreciate it. That's my goal now is, you know, I want to be the best teacher I can be and impact my students. But, you know, if I can help mitigate at least for my school, any kind of risk. That's uh, that's what my goal is. So. One school at a time. Body through continuous improvement. Yep. Good to go. Well, um, we always give our guests a chance to dedicate their episode to whomever they would like. And uh, Chuck tells me you have someone in mind. Yeah. So my best friend's name was Nicholas Rodriguez. We did our first deployment together. Um, 
spent every moment together on that deployment beforehand. And unfortunately, when we got back, I didn't understand what he was going through because we didn't really talk about mental uh, illness back then. You you mm-hmm. lied on the report so you could deploy again if you were going through issues. Yep. And unfortunately, he was one of those guys that never talked about what was bothering him. And, uh, you know, I want to de- dedicate my uh, this podcast or me speaking to him because there's not a moment I don't think about him or what I could have done differently to look for the signs that he was suicidal and he ended up taking his life in the room next to me after we had talked, you know, 10 minutes before I heard the gunshot woke up to it. And like I said, there's not a moment I don't think about him. So, you know, this podcast for him. And if that helps anyone by hearing that, like check on your buddies, it's okay to ask your friend, even if you're hard chargers and uh, check with them to see if they're okay. Ask the fucking question. Ask the question. Ask, are you thinking about killing yourself? A lot of people are afraid to ask that question. And you know what? Maybe just asking the question is going to give them like, oh, shit, he he like legit understands. She like legit understands that I might be going through a rough time. And they, you know, if if they're not their 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 reaction will probably tell you what 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 the fuck? No, what? No. And they okay, bro. It's just, you know, but if they even qualify, if they hesitate, if they hem and haw, if they. Hey, maybe dig a little deeper, bro. Just get that question out there. Don't, don't, uh, don't be complacent, I guess. Again. Yeah. hundred percent. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Let me tell my story. Hopefully it helps somebody. We'd love to have you back. You said you had another story. So, uh, keep in touch. We'll have you back on. All right, man. Sounds uh, good. We'll get an update on what you're doing at the school. Yeah. Hopefully it'll include, uh, tourniquets and chest seals. So I'll keep you guys posted. Well, we'll stay in touch if you need any, um, I can reach out and find out uh, with the, some of the school districts around here how they made that happen, and maybe we can share information. Yeah, absolutely. That would be yeah. very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Stay in touch. And uh, to your to your friend Nick, um, your brother in combat and arms, uh, rest easy, brother. We got it from here. Chuck, why don't you uh, why don't you finish this out yeah. tonight? Well, thank you all for listening today. If you like today's podcast, please go follow us on our Instagram at Warren Scories. If you like today's podcast, <laughs> please go follow us I'm not gonna. on our Instagram at war underscore stories underscore official and our Facebook at War Stories Podcast. You already follow us, share our post and our info. You can also go to the link in our bio on Instagram and Facebook to reach all of our socials, our media and our website. Our podcast is on all major podcast streaming platforms, as well as on YouTube. If you want to support us, please go to our website at www.warstoriesofficial.com. Grab some gear. We have the Woody Woody hoodies, shirts, patches, and stickers left, and it's coming to cold again. Hopefully break this heat wave of 110 fucking degrees where I'm at. And um, we we do have hats that are coming up to the uh, 90s. Yeah, it was like 110 today. Um, <laughs> fucking crazy. And then we have the uh, tank tops that we're in works with uh, supply chain issues. Yes. So we're, we're going to get those done. Um, just be patient with us. And um, if it somehow it gets too cold and we're like, oh, man, tank tops aren't good. Same design. We'll just throw it on a shirt. Yep. Um, but uh, but yeah, so if you have a story, you want to be featured on our show. Thank you. Uh, and you think you have a story, you want to be featured on our show. Please go to booking.warstories.com at gmail.com again that's booking.warstories at gmail.com and send me your story and i can get you booked we are looking for law enforcement corrections officers dispatchers firefighters medics and veterans if you have a friend who you think would be a great fit let them know about us and give them our booking email 
and uh, please make an introduction. But and that's how that's how we found apart. Ryan here. That's exactly yeah. how we found Ryan here. So uh, we appreciate sure. it, Ryan. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, All right. guys. All right. And until our next episode, come home with your shield or on it. <laughs>